Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. How are you doing tonight? You right? Uh, doing very well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was just saying it's nice to meet you, Justin. And, oh, thank uh, you. Good. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's great to meet you too, John. I've been uh, looking through your stuff and I'm very impressed by just how much you produce and on such different topics. It's it's really interesting. I like your uh, Rembrandt back there, the, the Nightwatch. Uh, Thank you. That's cool. Rembrandt is my all-time favorite artist. Oh, wow. Is that right? Yeah. Why is that? Because Rembrandt is a displaced metaphysician. He's, he's a metaphysician, a, a philosopher, who's been displaced into the medium of painting. And um, as a result of that, um, all of his paintings are these vast metaphysical world interiors. Um, and he was, did a wonderful job with uh, inheriting the already dead uh, Catholic iconotypes, the biblical iconotypes into the Protestant world. And you find him exploring a lot of new iconotypes, um, such as uh, Bathsheba bathing, um, and uh, all these various different uh, iconotypes that he comes up with that were never covered before, like in the medieval iconotypes, which were inherited from Byzantium, they all obsessively reiterate the Last Supper, the Virgin Birth, uh, the beheading of John the Baptist, over and over again until the crisis period of the 17th century, uh, when they got dismantled and deconstructed, and Protestantism came in, and iconism came in in the Northern Protestant churches. And in those churches, you see the walls on them, they're just stripped bare of iconotypes. Hmm. But Rembrandt did a wonderful job of still managing to preserve the connection with the Christian iconotypes while moving forward into the new Dutch world interior, where the world interior becomes infinite space. And the Dutch are the first to really, uh, their canvases are huge. Uh, Rembrandt wasn't much of a landscape painter. Um, That wasn't his specialty. Although I think the few landscapes that he has are very, very good. Uh, but the Dutch at that time had, had stepped out into infinite space, which itself becomes an iconotype uh, in the 17th century that displaces the closed gold-domed cavern iconotype uh, inherited from the, the Byzantine uh, tradition. Wow. That's, so that's why I like That's the short version. That's, no, just, that's fascinating. So when you say that they open on to infinite space, are you referring to a particular kind of technical innovation that occurs in art at that time and place, or is it a more, do you mean that in a more philosophical way? Both um, because the technical specifications that made it possible were of course, the discovery and mapping of cor- correct perspective. Right. Uh, but that, that had already been worked out in the 15th century uh, in Italy. Uh, and, but Leonardo is really the first long about 1500, the first to completely master it. Uh, and to use perspective, optically, perspectively correct space um, as a way of manifesting this new world feeling for infinity. Wow. So the West is the first civilization in history that has stepped out into infinity. 
we are, have been the because all the other civilizations are closed. They have cavern cosmologies, the, the Indian cavern cosmology or the cavern cosmology that we inherited from the Greeks, which is the earth is at the center surrounded by whirling crystalline spheres. And each one of those spheres has a planet like a bubble uh, that's carried on on the sphere, uh, but it's enclosed and the spheres are harmonious. Each one of them makes a sound and the soul as it descends toward incarnation on earth goes through those whirling spheres and picks up the qualities that are associated with the different planets. Uh, you pick up Mercury, that's your intellect. You pick up Mars, that's your aggression. You pick up Venus, that's your eros. Uh, until your astral body is rebuilt and you come down to uh, incarnate on the earth in a physical body, uh, and this is the Platonic tradition that is carried on again by the Neoplatonists uh, and the Gnostics as well, that your soul comes equipped with the knowledge of the cosmos inside of it which is accessible through various forms of gnosis and um, that the memory of your descent through the spheres can be um, recovered. Oh, wow. um, that's pretty wild. That's yeah. So that's, that's that closed cosmology that we inherited from the Greeks. Uh, but all of them were closed until uh, the crisis period in Western art, 1500 to 1700, when new cosmologies are coming into being the Copernican cosmology has come in already uh, so we already know we're out moving on a planet in infinite space. Uh, and it's initially disorienting. You get Laplace saying, the silence of these infinite spaces terrifies me. Um, and he was right. Uh, Giordano Bruno in Italy is coming up with all these kinds of new ideas. Different solar systems maybe are out there. All This infinity of whirling planets uh, going around central orbs. Um, so that was the crisis point in, in Western art, 1500 to 1700 where one world age liquefies, melts, and dissolves away like molten glowing magma, metaphysical magma, let's say, mm -hmm. and the new world age comes in uh, by the time you get to Rembrandt, where it's, we're out there, man, where the infinite is it. And mathematically, you get the infinitesimal calculus being worked out by Leibniz at exactly the same time uh, where the infinitesimal function becomes the vanishing point in mathematics mm. uh, and, and so forth and so forth. So since you just mentioned math, you just made me think of, Nick Land has this thesis that modernity really takes off in Europe with the arrival of zero and the understanding of zero. Does that sync up with anything you were just? Yes. I, no, I, I don't know mathematics. Uh, it's my worst subject. Uh, okay. But I know a bit about the cultural history of mathematics. The number zero, for example, okay. was invented by the Hindus. Naturally, of course, the Hindus. Mm -hmm. uh, see, um, we have this idea that math is just this history that got gradually got figured out as we went all along. But as a matter of fact, Oslo Spengler talks about this in the decline of the West. You have to have a, a, already a, a metaphysical predisposition toward a concept. Uh, and then the concept arrives mm. as an incarnation of that idea. So the Hindus were very good at this idea of the, of the void, not the infinite, not infinite space for them, but the void that's within it's the exact opposite, uh, whether it's Brahman or whether it's uh, the void in Buddhism They've already got the idea, so naturally they would come up with the number zero, and the Arabs inherited it from them uh, and brought it over to us, along with uh, Arabic numerals, uh, which were quite an improvement over the Roman uh, numerals. Um, so, yeah, that makes sense. Right. But do you have any insight into why the arrival of zero might be a unique kind of turning point that would that would unleash the other dynamics that we associate with the moder the takeoff of modernity? Um, maybe it's just simply because once you have the number zero, then you can do negative mathematics that open up a vanishing point back behind all the other numbers. 
Um, so I think it is it is a crucial thing that came in that that helped the West c- continue this exploration of infinity. Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Man, we're off to the races already. <laughs> this is great. I um, love talking about this stuff. It's it's awesome. You didn't you didn't need any warm ups. I like that. <laughs> well, you know what though, John. In your case though, I'm actually really interested in your career and kind of your your trajectory and your and your lifestyle. I might even use the word lifestyle because um, I'm very impressed by just how prolific you are and how how you know much how much liberty you've taken to work on a variety of different topics. And you seem to occupy a unique kind of idiosyncratic. Uh, space in in various overlapping types of cultural markets. Um, and so, you know, just from browsing your stuff, it's, you know, it's sort of, un, it's unclear kind of like how to, how to understand you as an individual and, and understand your career and your, and your, your larger project. So I would love just in your own words, if you wouldn't mind to kind of give me and also our listeners uh, just a bit of uh, background on, sure. on how, how you describe your overarching project, I guess. Yes, my, my, my key theme that I'm fascinated with is how culture functions, how civilizations uh, come together, what holds them together, and what happens when they fall apart. Okay. That's, my, that's the theme that you can find explored everywhere. And whether I'm talking about uh, the life cycle of the graphic novel, for instance, it always has a beginning and a maturation and a disintegration, or a contemporary film, uh, which I believe now is post-classic, um, and my background then simply, uh, I started as a myth studies scholar, myth, the ritual symbol and myth, uh, religious studies. Um, I was hired by the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and I worked uh, as an editor for them for a while. And I just learned Campbell's world and the Jungian world uh, and studied the history of religions and came to understand how religion forms the basis for the inception of a new civilization. Um, so I got that point down. And then studying Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West uh, led me to understand how and why they fall apart. And then uh, let me pause. So in those periods, are you, are you like a paid research associate or something or? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was with the Campbell foundation. I was a paid editor uh, for them for a while, for about five years while they okay, were. So that uh, involved you doing editor work, but then also doing independent research. Well, I just did the independent research on my own. Uh, and then it did the editing work for them, wrote a lot of the footnotes in some of Campbell's posthumous books. Okay, cool. Very cool. So go on. So then um, I moved into, uh, once I lost that job because they lost their contract with Harper Collins. The Campbell books weren't making them the money that they wanted. And so uh, they didn't have the money to pay me. So I went out on my own and then I started interviewing scientists about their spirituality and uh, scientists who were influenced by mythology, such as the bacteriologist uh, Lynn Margulis. Hmm. Uh, Lynn Margulis, who's, who's now deceased, uh, um, she's the co-creator of the Gaia Hypothesis with James Lovelock. So I interviewed a bunch of scientists and put that out as my first book, long about the time I was 30 years old. So that was the first book. It was this exploration into science. And then I slowly started moving in from there into media studies. Hmm. Uh, William Irwin Thompson was my mentor for a very long time. So I had him a very large debt. Uh, to turning me on to media studies and introducing me to Marshall McLuhan. And I think that after the Campbell event in my life, the next great intellectual event was the McLuhan event. Okay. So uh, hang on real quick. I'm curious because you, your first book, was that with a traditional big publisher? Because I think you also do you experiment yes. with independent publishing nowadays too, right? Later, later I did. Uh, so but first, my, my, my first, first 
five Tradi books. Traditional first, publishers. Yeah, they were traditional publishers, the first five. Okay. okay. So go on. I'm just curious about these things. Cool. Go on. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the McLuhan event. So uh, McLuhan hit me, and uh, that gave me a whole new angle on studying culture forms outside of the domain of religious and mythical studies. So I read all of McLuhan. I read McLuhan's associates like Harold Innes, uh, Walter Ong, uh, the whole McLuhan school. So I absorbed that world. And then later on, I gradually moved into philosophy uh, when I was working at a book about dead celebrities, living icons. And I knew that uh, I hadn't read much French uh, post postmodern thought. I generally tended to avoid it because the philosophical background of Campbell uh, was German romantic idealist philosophy, uh, such as Kant uh, and Goethe and Schelling. So I had read all those guys uh, and was very had a very strong footing in the German idealist tradition. Uh, but I thought that the, I was never interested in French postmodern thinking until uh, I started flirting with Baudrillard. And I started reading him, his, his book, America, for instance, I thought was great. Um, and just one great thing, one book. Uh, go ahead. Sorry, I, and what are you doing for money at this point? Oh, I'm a uh, an editor, uh, sort of a freelance editor for hire. I work as the proofreader for Semiotext in Los Angeles. I proofread all their documents, and I also work as an editor at uh, Zero Books uh, with Doug Lane there. Um, so that's my bread and butter. Okay, and you've been doing that for a while. That's been your main thing for yeah, about almost ten years now. Yeah, something like that. Okay, and that and you have pretty steady work like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. I was just curious. Okay, cool. That's really yeah. interesting. So you so can you survive as an intellectual, but you have to have nowadays uh, the public intellectual. I think is dead because uh, mm -hmm. the big New York houses aren't promoting them, and I think that the age of the great public intellectual had a lot to do with the big New York houses. Lewis Mumford, uh, for instance, or Carl Sagan, Daniel Borstein. Uh, those types were all published by the big New York houses until the late nineties when the New York houses closed the door on big intellect. And mm -hmm. once they did that, big intellect had nowhere else to go, but into uh, other outlets, the uh, academic presses uh, and the academic presses are fine. I've published with two or three of them, uh, but you have to play by their rules and they make you change things like titles and things that don't need changing, but that they think needs changing. And so I got sick of that and, and left uh, traditional publishing for that reason. Uh, I'm a control freak. I like to control the final product. Uh, I proofread it. I edit it. I format it. I do the book on InDesign. And now I upload it myself onto Amazon's CreateSpace, which I've been doing for like the past 20 books or so. And I'm much happier with the results. The, the income is better. It's more money. It's a better cut. Um, just, I just think it was the wave of the future. that uh, Now we have all these publishing outlets available to us. We don't have to play by anyone's rules anymore. Right. This right. is the age where it's DIY. So all the stuff is available for you to do whatever you want. Uh, you just have to teach yourself the skills to, to do it. Yeah, I've been, actually been doing some research into the book publishing market because I actually, at the moment, I just so happens that I was lucky enough to secure a, a, a pretty big literary agent. So I'm working on a, my first book right now with a yeah. probably go through a traditional publisher. But I've been doing research into the current kind of environment for publishing, and it's phenomenal. I've really been surprised at what you, what the data shows, which is exactly what you're saying. I mean, most of the most successful authors right now are self-published authors uh, in, in a few different ways. You can cut that down in a few different ways. Um, and the data is really quite striking. It's not what a lot of people would think. Yes.
So, um, yeah. So something like the long tail, wasn't there a, a, uh, an idea that had something like the long tail, the, the that's more, right. of, more of less is now in. Um, right. And you seem to be smaller scale. You yeah. seem to be one of the people that is at the forefront of, of making this work in a really powerful way. And that's one of the many reasons I was looking forward to talking with you. I also, you know, there's a personal bit of background. I don't know how much you've been following my own, um, re- what's been going on in my life recently, but um, I'm an academic. I think you might know. And I, I, I'm a pretty stable, successful kind of competitive um, uh, professor of political science and academic uh, political scientist. But I've recently been having uh, problems, let's just say, with my uh, employers, and and it's not clear what's gonna ha- how it's gonna pan out. But basically, I'm not even sure how much I want to play kind of academic game anymore. It's just like you were saying; it's like all all of these opportunities now exist for people to be radically independent and to do it even more successfully than they would through the traditional channels. That it's sort of like the, my my reasons for following along with like institutional rules just seem to be decreasing every year. <laughs> and so it's yeah. like, I'm not sure. Well, how- all my yeah. academic friends say the same thing. I have, I have a number of close friends who are academics uh, and they're all complaining about the same restrictions on their careers and the problems that they're encountering. And so they keep telling me it's a good thing you didn't go into academia. You wouldn't have the kind of creative freedom that you do have. Uh, so it turned out to be, I guess, the right decision for me. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm very impressed it by that. On what you want. It depends yeah. on what you want. How, how much control you want over your career uh, and then just go with that, you know, follow that kind of impulse and follow the gravitational pull uh, to where you, you feel like you can best express who you are, you know, inside. Uh, and it just depends on where you want to fit. Right. That's, that's a good point. I think people do have different temperaments and some people prefer to be in a kind of academic structure. Some people prefer to be more free. Uh, that's a, that's a good point. Yep. I mean, if it, if it's okay with you, I actually would like to pause on this and 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 develop it a little bit more and pick your brain about this a little bit more. Okay. Because you seem like you had a lot to say about that, and you and and you're doing well with it. So, um, for instance, maybe we could backpedal to what you said before about I think you said in the 1990s the big the big publishing houses kind of closed their doors to to the intellect. What did you mean by that? Because um, I found that I couldn't get any of my books published with the big New York houses. Hmm. And the fact that I lost the contract uh, with the Joseph Campbell Foundation because they were contracted with Harper Collins, one of the biggest, okay. um, is testament. It's a testament to the climate that was going on there. They weren't interested in Campbell for Campbell's sake. They wanted to make money. Hmm. And I think that uh, the publishing industry in the late '90s just became more focused on surviving the what I call the new media invasion which is the onslaught of hypermodernity with all of its digital technologies that are melting down the Gutenbergian galaxy, uh, completely disintegrating it. And the, put, this put a lot of pressure, I think, on the big houses to survive, and it left them less latitude to take risks. It's a little bit like analogous to uh, the kinds of risk-taking that Hollywood was doing back in the 1960s and 70s uh, when, like, Bob what's his name? The big producer there, Bob Evans. I, I forget his name. Uh, the big producer who was a risk taker and he financed all of these uh, new types of films like the Godfather uh, apocalypse. Now uh, great films like this, that completely changed the, the industry. But nowadays cinema is like uh, publishing. They don't take those risks anymore. And consequently film is it's, it's virtually worthless. I, I find it completely boring and uninteresting now because there's no risk taking going on there at all. There's nothing new. 
It's all recycling uh, cliches and stereotypes and remaking films from the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. back when film was good because <laughs> they were taking risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing I think happened with the publishing industry. They just stopped wanting to take risks and just it became all about the bottom line and only about the bottom line. So guys right. like me uh, who would have survived uh, like a Lewis Mumford, Lewis Mumford, for instance, didn't have any degrees. Uh, he had no degrees from universities. He it was a self-made public intellectual who published all his books with, I think, Harper, actually, Harper Torch books, if I remember right. Um, so, he, you know, Jane Jacobs was another public intellectual, too, who also did not have a Ph.D., who did indeed survive through writing for magazines. I think both of them were connected with the New York magazine world, and uh, they made their careers as cultural critics. They're living uh, while writing books uh, for big New York publishers back then who were taking risks. And so uh, the whole publishing industry has changed. And I think it has to do with the new me- what I call the new media invasion. I've written a book about this uh, that has melted all this down. Right. Okay. So when did you first go into self-publishing? Uh, long about, uh, let's see, it was 2010, I think. And it was a risk. I, I thought um, I was writing the book Art After Metaphysics, my book about ex- examining and understanding contemporary art. And I realized that without a background in art or a degree in art, that it would be very difficult to get that book published, even, even in academe. So I thought, I, you know, there's all this new stuff now. What's going on on Amazon? Can you self-publish on Amazon? So I looked it up and I saw there's CreateSpace. You can indeed self-publish on Amazon. So I just did a little experiment with it, put that out as my first self-published book in 2010, uh, and everything was great. And so I thought, well, let's just keep doing this. This is working. It's a much quicker process. You don't have to wait a year for your book to come out. Right. Once a manuscript is submitted and accepted by a publisher, it usually takes a year for it to come out. Right. Here, it's just a matter of like a month or two. You know, it's a very quick process, especially if you know how to do all the work yourself and you don't have to pay them anything. If you do all the work, they'll just publish it for you. Right. And you said you make more money that way. It's 90-10. It's the traditional split. Uh, in the publishing world, they take 90%, they give you 10%, maybe 12 if you're lucky. Uh, but in, on Amazon, it's 60-40. They take 60 to give you 40, and they pay you every month. Uh, traditional publishers pay you once a year, maybe twice, depending on the royalties. They're usually measly checks. Um, so, yeah, I just got disillusioned with the whole publish. It's just, it's a raw deal. <laughs> no matter which way you look at it, uh, the writer uh, cannot survive unless you can attain superstar status like a Deepak Chopra. Uh, or somebody like that. But I have, I don't have a lot of respect for those guys. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, uh, Deepak Chopra, I interviewed him way back uh, at the start of my career. And I did read his early books that I thought were all very good uh, case studies about uh, medicine, and uh, what the somatic causes are of illness and how the mind manifests itself in the physical, but all these interesting things. And then uh, he blew up overnight uh, on Oprah. And I sort of lost respect for him because he just started churning out one Drek book after the next, purely for cynical money-making reasons. And I, I lost respect for him. But, you know, that's really the only way you can survive is if you want to become a sellout superstar uh, and make a Faustian deal. So it is a deal with, with Mephistopheles because uh, you become a sellout. Yeah, and that's you a good point, right? Like if you do the traditional publishing route through some of the big houses, then the, the only people who do that and – make a living off of that because they take such a big cut, you have to be basically churning out, uh, you know, like highly marketable 
stuff that they are really kind of guiding and and and, and kind of directing because yeah, they it's going to be all feel good stuff. Uh, Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. There's not going to be any intellectual content in any of it. They're just yeah. Like if you look at the data on, they have data on, um, like of all of the authors in the world that are actually um, living off of their books, more than half, a, a majority of them are are self published, and they're I'm not surprised. And the ability, because what the data show is that the ability to actually make a living off of publishing through the big houses, that that's actually decreasing over time. And the ability to make a living off of self-publishing is increasing over time. I figured that out a ways back. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, that was the way the wind was blowing. I I could, I could sense it. Right. It sounds like you're way ahead of the curve, but I think only recently has it really become very true. And it's like now it's all like you sensed that it was going that way, and you were right. And now you look at the data, and it's like undeniable. (laughs) And uh, and not a lot of people know that. I think it's really quite interesting. Yeah. So it's my career has been an experiment of self-making and surviving as a nomad outside of all the traditional apparatuses of capture of publishing. Uh, and that's the only way I've been able to manage uh, to survive is being a nomad. Uh, of course, you have to make, you know, uh, you do lose some freedoms there because money is always a problem. You always have to you're always trying to figure out how to shuffle finances around. Uh, but it, it can still work. I mean, you can always find a way to do it. Um, I diversified. I just, you know, I put lectures up on Google Play for money uh, because people were complaining that my YouTube lectures, which are free, uh, they wanted to listen to them in, on their iPods and they couldn't get them on their iPods. And so they were asking me to figure that out. So I opened up Google Play, did a bunch of lectures on there. So there's an income stream from that, income stream from YouTube videos, income stream from Amazon. And so after a while, uh, as, as you get all these income streams diversifying and multiplying, Patreon, uh, then pretty soon you start finding yourself, you, you have an income, right? That's how, that's how you do it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. That's really impressive how ahead of the curve you were on that. So, um, a, a bit of a random question, but something someone just threw up in, in the chat is, um, when do you think, when was the last good movie made? <laughs> well, there's still every now and then, of course, there's, there's a good one that pops up, although, I haven't seen one lately. Uh, I think I like the films of Terrence Malick. Uh, you know, the tree of life was, was quite impressive. That's a masterpiece. Um, Terrence Malick though, is a bit of an anomaly because he started out, I think he was a professor of philosophy and he switched to film back in the seventies when the big creative explosion was happening. And he made uh, two or three films, days of heaven, I think, and badlands. Uh, they were very good. And then he just disappeared for like 15, 20 years. And no one knew right? he'd given up, I, I guess. And then he comes back with uh, that great uh, 1996, I think, uh, World War II film, uh, Thin Red Line. Uh, that thing's a masterpiece. And so and he's made very good films ever since, Tree of Life. But he's a bit of a, a displacement. Uh, his career should have happened with the film school generation, uh, Kubrick and Spielberg and Coppola and all those guys. But there was a delay, and then he made a comeback, and so consequently, he's we're getting high quality from him in most of his films, not all of them. Some of them are not so good. But um, Tree of Life was very impressive. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. I did not like Mandy. People were recommending me to watch Mandy, and I thought it was a very terrible ripoff of David Lynch. Uh, I didn't like it at all. Um, so okay, that's that's cool. That's an interesting answer. I haven't seen it, so it's a good recommendation. 
So, okay, cool. So Mother was good. Darren Aronofsky's uh, film Mother. I liked that. That was very good. There was a lot of creativity in that film. Uh, very, very good film. So they do, they do, they happen. But see, when an art form, uh, art forms have morphologies. Uh, this is, and the Germans starting with Winkelmann back in the 18th century were the first to figure this out, that uh, looking at the art of antiquity, that it had an early phase, a maturation period in fifth century Athens, when the sculpture uh, was as good as sculpture can ever get. And then a Hellenistic phase where it was post-classic and in decline. All art forms work this way. And I sort of adopted that Germanic model and applied it to film uh, and found out that film did indeed peak in the 70s and the uh, 60s, 70s and 80s. And then uh, in the 90s, it started to decline. And uh, But when a medium dies, it doesn't die all at once. It's a gradual process of flickers. You get occasional masterpieces still flickering, but there are few fewer and fewer and farther and farther between as the medium dies down. Interesting. My, my favorite movie is Jerry Maguire. It's not a bad film. I, I enjoyed that film, I guess. Uh, I didn't want to watch it, but I did. And I did enjoy it. It it was good. People make fun of me, but I'm glad to hear that you thought it was not bad. (laughs) No, it wasn't bad at all. I, I guess I remember watching it thinking, uh, I think I watched it with when I was married, you know, it was the only reason I watched it. Uh, I don't usually watch the feel-good movies, but I, I remember hating that I liked it. Uh, that's okay. how I felt. I just hated that that I liked the film because I didn't <laughs> want to like it, but it was charming. So, <laughs> it's, yeah. I like simple and wholesome films. Yeah, that's that's a nice one. Can't so, quote too much for that. So, <laughs> yeah, of all of your so of all of your books. Um, <laughs> Did did we did I kind of interrupt you on telling your larger trajectory, or did you get through it for the most part? Uh, no, the last phase of it uh, was just discovering philosophy, okay. uh, academic philosophy, the French. And once I brought the French in, uh, and then went through all of postmodern philosophy, then I sort of realized I had three worlds to draw from for theoretical applications: uh, comparative myth studies, media studies, and critical theory. And uh, so I sort of have a a balance of all three of those. And I try to apply. So it just gives me a very broad range of tools to call in whenever I want to analyze a cultural development. Um, okay. So that's my background. All right. Fascinating. Which, which of your books, if you had to say uh, one of them as your magnum magnum opus so far, which one would that be? Well, I don't think I have a magnum opus because um I don't know. The days of magnum opuses don't seem to be there anymore. It's okay. like it's like asking, you know, what, what's the best Baudrillard book? And he's got so many of them that are so good. There's no real way to single one out. But I will say this: that I think my four best were definitely the New Media Invasion, Dead, Ce- Dead Celebrities, Living Icons, Art After Metaphysics, and The Age of Catastrophe. <clears throat> all four of those books, sort of, uh, if you read all four of them, you you would get a, a full vision of my complete worldview. Okay. Very cool. And all of your books, the self-published ones, can you get them in hard, hard cover, like paperback? Uh, yeah, they're all available on, on Amazon in paperback. Right. You all do that all yourself through Amazon? What's that? And you, you do that all yourself through Amazon. You set that up on yes, Amazon. That's right. I do all the work and then I just load it up on there for free. And then they take their 60% cut as they sell it for me as it, it's print on demand as it goes along. Right. Works out very, right. very nicely. Okay. Yeah. That's so cool. I think, uh, that's really cool. Um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So, okay, cool. So what are you working on right now? Uh, right now, mostly just doing videos. I, uh, I've taken I a break from that. writing. I've a lot of videos. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've taken a break from writing because I've done, I did so much of it over the past decade. I, I put out 26 books. And so <clears throat> I've kind of, I'm kind of at a pause, a, a chisora uh, with regard to my writing, but now I, I'm focusing more on the electronic media uh, with YouTube videos and doing lots of those and different discussions. And I'm out and about here in Santa Fe interacting with the culture out here, uh, which is fun. Right. How long have you been in Santa Fe? Let's see. I just moved here about ten months ago, so almost a year now. And oh, uh, right. I just gave a talk. Uh, I gave a talk the other night on uh, sex, death, and language uh, at at, uh, at an interesting host's uh, house. Uh, we had a nice little crowd and get together. It was a lot of fun. Oh, really cool. What what drew you out there? Well, I had been driving back and forth between Phoenix and Boulder. Uh, I lived in Boulder for a little while and back and forth. And I always stop in Santa Fe. And over the years, I just realized that's where I wanted to live, that, that I like the, the small town scale of Santa Fe. It's only 80,000 people, but it's incredibly culturally rich. It has an, uh, a New York art world sophistication to it that no small town has that you're not going to find anywhere else. Uh, but because of the axial relationship between George O'Keefe and Alfred Stieglitz and their connection with the New York art world, there's, there's a strong connection between the two. So it's very culturally sophisticated. But yet it's, it's very anti-big city. There's no huge freeway systems. They're six lanes wide. There are no skyscrapers. Now, a lot of the stresses of living in those kinds of urban megalopolitan agglomerations just don't occur here. Uh, and I was born and raised in one of them in Phoenix. And I lived in San Francisco for a while, too. So I know what the big cities are like. And they're just not to my liking. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a good reasoning. At once, once kind of my academic career in England, I'm in England right now, which is where I've been working for the past five years and where I'm kind of based as an academic for now. Once my, once I've had my recent kind of um, uncertainty around my, my career emerge, uh, my wife and I have started talking about, you know, where on the map we might abscond to if uh, I get kicked out of the country because losing my job would basically mean I'm kicked out of the country because of my visa is dependent on, on the job. So yeah, uh-huh. we, so we, my wife and I have been um, pondering about a bunch of different possible places we might go to. So that's why I'm always curious to hear where people choose to choose to be. Yeah, Santa Fe is right now the cultural capital of the southwestern United States. It's really, where is it, it's, it, it's it, where it's at right is now. Is cost yeah. of living pretty low? Uh, it, yeah, it's it's not bad. Yeah, it's cool. it's not like San Francisco or New York or L.A. Right, uh, it's nothing like that. Um, it's manageable. Right. Very cool. So maybe let's talk about your YouTube channel because I saw, yeah, I noticed sure. that I noticed that you're, you've been getting, getting after the, the video production and it looks like you've been applying yourself uh, with the same amount of dedication you've applied yourself with the book writing. So maybe it looks to me from, I, I kind of browsed all of your stuff. Uh, there's so much stuff. It, I didn't have the time to, to go through all of it, obviously, but you, it sounds, it seems like you do a lot of commentaries on thinkers that you're interested in. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Could maybe what's your what's your thinking about what are you trying to do with the channel or or what made well, you want there, the explanation is quite simple. Uh, this was back here again, right around the year twenty ten, I think it was about the same time I switched to self publishing. Um, I was wrestling with trying to understand Heidegger, hmm. uh, and I'd been working on Heidegger for years and could never get to a point of breakthrough with him. And so at that point, I was going on to YouTube and I was like. Uh, Surely there must be uh, people on here, uh, who professors or whatever, who know about Heidegger and are doing free explanations of him. So I was going on there and there was nothing. There was nobody talking except for an occasional Hubert Dreyfus interview. But there was nothing else on him. 
And then at the point where I reached the breakthrough, listening to a couple of really good professors in their classroom podcasts and got the breakthrough, uh, I realized, hey, this is doable. I mean, anyone can understand this if I just walk them through it. So I started uploading Heidegger videos um, and they people were like thankful. They were like, yes, that's great. And then I started uploading Oswald Spengler videos and it just went from there. And people just seem to like, you know, some students would come to me and say that they got really good grades as a result of watching all my videos on Kant's critique of pure reason, you know, so it's helping people and they're learning. And uh, I just have this idea of taking very difficult philosophical discourse and democratizing it uh, so that people can draw from it. And a lot of, I get a lot of poets and artists uh, coming to me who have drawn inspiration from those videos more They've been way more influential than my books. Really? Uh, yeah, by far. So I think that says something about which way the wind is blowing here. Uh, I don't know about the world of tr- paper publishing, how long that's going to survive this. Uh, it, it just seems like everything's digital and the, the digital world is where everyone wants to be. Um, most people who approach me have come from the videos uh, and haven't usually read the books. So it's interesting what, what's happening. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very uh, McLuhan-esque kind of insight or perspective that it does, it does really seem like people want the, people want the media that's like most live, you know, they want the medium that's most, that's most connective, that's most rich, that's most kind of uh, intense. And I mean, I've seen it even in the contrast between podcasting and YouTubing or live streaming, like, I, I have a podcast also that's kind of parallel to the to these live streams that I've been doing. Uh, but I started doing the podcast for like a year. Didn't mess with YouTube at all, really. Then just kind of creatively experimenting, did some videos on YouTube, did some live streams on YouTube. And it's basically the same thing. It's just talking, but it's plus the video. And then it's plus the, the live aspect. I think the live, and I what I noticed was that the live streams, like what we're doing right now, get way more engagement. And it's kind of obvious why, right? Because people are listening. They know that somewhere on the other side of the world, there's me actually doing this, this moment and they can chat, they can talk, they can talk, they can talk amongst themselves and I can monitor it and I try to bring it into the conversation. And so obviously, I mean, people just want the richest, most intense kind of most direct connective experience generally, I think. Yeah. It's really fascinating uh, what all this new media is enabling us to accomplish all sorts of new things. It's a it's a new media invasion, but it's also a new media explosion. Mm. Um, most of, uh, you know, the, the whole world that I grew up in of record stores, bookstores, you know, tower records, magazines, all of that world is now basically gone. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's what, that one day, this, I realized this, uh, and this is what caused me to write New Media Invasion was, um, I went to the, I was like, I'm going to go over to Tower Records and see what's new. And so I went, <laughs> over there and they're like out of business i'm like what tower records is gone that's when it started dawning on me what was actually happening and then i started checking the data and looking and seeing how many magazines started disappearing gourmet magazine disappeared premiere magazine disappeared all these different magazines started disappearing newspapers started disappearing and i started realizing "Uh oh something this is a, a a media extinction event um, and it's the result of the internet. So that's what caused me to write that book. It came out of the stress of these two worlds colliding and the one disintegrating and the new one now, uh, exploding with all these new media possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it remains to be seen whether these new media possibilities are going to be as stable and long lasting as having artifacts. 
like books and magazines and printed things. Uh, this seems to be a much more evanescent medium. You know, for instance, I criticized Wikipedia. That's probably why I'm not on Wikipedia because in the new media invasion, I criticized them for having an encyclopedia that's based on unstable knowledge. So you look up Napoleon and something that was true about Napoleon yesterday is not there anymore. So, mm -hmm. so that's not a fact anymore. And so you've got this Wikipedia, this database that's based on gossip and rumor. It's not knowledge. It's rumors uh, that the folk have come in to contribute uh, and say, I have heard that Napoleon is this, this happened. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very unstable uh, liquid modernity type thing. It's, mm. it's not a comfortable thing at all. And it's very mistrustful. And, uh, but the whole, you know, the whole media landscape is like that. It's evanescent things. Right. I found, you know, videos and I've lost articles and blogs that have just disappeared into the electronic ether, never to be heard from again. You know, <laughs> where did they go? Uh, so I am very, also very skeptical about the future of this. I, I just right. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good question. That's a very good point. But I think that's actually an exciting frontier right now because one thing I'm really interested in, and I spent a fair amount of time actually monitoring these developments and paying attention to them and playing with them myself, um, kind of using machine learning tools and, and basically AI to kind of convert different media into uh, other, other formats. And so, for instance, I will... If I do a live stream that I think was especially good, I might uh, have it automatically transcribed by machine learning tools, basically. And that will give me a transcript pretty quickly, uh, pretty cheaply. I have to do a little bit of editing to clean it up. But nowadays, it's really damn good. I mean, you can turn a podcast into text almost completely huh. perfectly with a machine for like, you know, a few cents on the dollar paid to Google or whatever. Um, you have to have I like... You have to have the basic programming chops to just set it up, but it's not technical stuff. You're mo you're mostly uh, delegating the the heavy lifting to Google or IBM or whatever it is. So I've been I've been playing around <laughs> with this stuff more and more because I think that's yeah. a possible frontier for us inde independent creative people, kind of in on the internet. Like the more we can get kind of teched up on these technologies coming down the pike to basically um, uh, reproduce the different types of content that we make and, and convert them into other forms for maximum reach, maximum transmissibility. I think there's a lot of value to be gained by harnessing those tools for independent purposes. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, it's, it's a creative explosion now. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, like a nightmare would be like, what if, what if YouTube went out of business one day and then imagine, you know, that's, and it was gone and suddenly all this creative content is gone. Um, it's not likely to happen, but it, it's still, it's an if. Um, the same could be said for any of these big sites. I mean, they're stable now, but uh, it's still, it's always been in the back of my mind. What happens if, if a whole site goes down and your content goes down with it? And it's not a very comfortable thing because then there's nothing left if, if it's all electronic. And the surface of inscription that we're writing on right now is, is electrons. Uh, that has replaced the printed page slices of wood as the surface of inscription that we've inherited from the Gutenberg galaxy has now shifted over to uh, the surface of inscription using electrons to write with. Uh, but those are much more unstable and less likely to leave a memory inscribed upon them. Right. Yeah. The <laughs> matter uh, remembers things. That's the thing about the book is that it's not just the content of what's in it, but also the fact that wood 
has been used as a material substrate that has been taken from the earth uh, as a surface of inscription to make marks upon, uh, which there creates a very strong memory, uh, almost in the earth's memory in a certain sense, in a metaphoric sense, uh, of a mark that has been made there. And it's not, it's, it, it's much more resistant to evanescence, I think, than electronic uh, rising forth and vanishing, rising forth and vanishing. Hmm. Hmm. And so, okay. And so your, your YouTube videos are mostly around you kind of working through texts, I guess, partially for your own interest and also to share and kind of teach uh, what's going on in different texts that you're interested in. Is that basic idea around the videos you do? Yeah. That's interesting. Do you ever mess around with live stream at all or no? I haven't, I haven't yet. Um, I'm not sure what the advantage is. I would rather have the artifact, at least the basic artifact of a video that's there so people can go watch it. Uh, So, but I'm I'm open to experimentation. Well, it automatically archives as a video once you're done with okay. the live stream. So, I see. yeah, it goes up to be a normal video automatically right after. The only main advantage is that you um, you get people can chat, people can watch and talk as they're watching. And so, like right now, I'm looking at um, a feed of people who are watching, and they're they can kind of communicate to me, and then I can bring up their questions and and so on. And so it, it's you get more engagement. It's fun for people. And uh, it's also kind of, it's fun for you also, because it's like more live and uh, you don't have to generate your own energy as much. You can kind of feed off of others. So it's good. Yeah. It's especially good for having conversations like what we're doing right now with other people, because the, the, the interface is really pretty slick and very reliable, like to bring in another person or even like three people, four more people. Um, it's all very straightforward. It's all out of Google Hangouts and it's, it's all just very automatic and quite, quite effective. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, do you have a kind of um, once your your hiatus from writing books is over? Do you are you kind of thinking up, uh, thinking about your next? Oh yes. Yeah, I, I've got uh, several books in 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 my head, and some actually that I've left half finished. Uh, I left uh, half finished a commentary on 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, so I've got half of that done. I just need to go back. And that's the way I work. I, I leave things unfinished and then I go back and work on them again years later. Um, a lot of my books have, have been written at various different stages of my life. And so, yeah, I'm going to put out a book on hypermodernity, for instance. That's a definite. And a couple of other books that, that are also in the works that I'm thinking about. So, yeah, I, I know what I'm going to write when I get back to it. Yeah. OK, that's very cool. So do you are you doing video? Are you doing YouTube like full time now apart i guess from your your paid editor uh, responsibilities uh, no not really just as the urge strikes me you know to do a video um, lately it's been two or three a week something like that uh, just as a fun recreation from my editing time or in between manuscripts a lot of times it's like construction work you know you don't always know when you're going to get the job so there are gaps in between and i fill those gaps with the videos right okay yeah cool so so someone is asking about uh, if you could talk about uh, psychic media, uh, I'm, curious, I'm curious what your take is on that. Psychic media in, in, in what sense? No. Someone, a, a couple people were just saying, have him talk about uh, psychic medium. I don't, I don't know what that, I don't know what they have in mind, but. This, well, I'm mystically inclined. I believe in things like the afterlife, reincarnation, okay. and the reality of the soul, God. Um, I, all that stuff is real for me. So, yes, naturally, uh, I, of course, the psychic phenomena, I've experienced 
psychic phenomena my, my whole life. Probably most people have, but people who don't believe in those things just blink them away. Uh, but if you actually pay attention uh, <laughs> and be open to it, you start seeing, yes, it is real. We're interacting with another with another world. There's, there's definitely a spiritual world that we're a part of and interacting with. We're just vibrating at a very low, slow, dense material frequency down here in the material realm uh, to interact with the, the other realm. Uh, it's higher frequency vibrational stuff. Um, so it's a matter of densification. Um, so for me, all that stuff is very, very real. Okay. And so when you, when you talk about psychic communication, let's call it, or, or do you imagine that as, do you see yourself as, as communicating with, with God or just another dimension type of model? Sometimes, sure. Sometimes absolutely. That's what prayer is. Uh, sure. you know, sometimes, uh, that's what it feels like. Um, mediums are lucky because they, the, the mediums can get an answer back from the other side. Uh, people who don't have that skill, uh, it's just a one-way channel and you don't get the answer back. Although uh, if you pay attention to the events unfolding in, in your life, I, I think you will see that you answers do come back to you uh, on the material plane. In certain chance events, random encounters, suspicious synchronicities, um, you'll start seeing things coming back. Uh, you just have to be open to it. That's all it is. It's, so when you talk about uh, vibrating on on freak on different frequencies, are you talking about frequencies in a in a fairly literal sense? Well, no, probably not. It's it, well, I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, this is what the mediums that I've interviewed have told me that it has to do with vibrational frequency that matter that we're in now down here is just very low, slow, and dense, uh, and on the other side, it's very high vibrational frequency. I, I don't know how you would translate that into physics because I don't know enough about physics to anchor that. But that's the paradigm that I get from them. That's sort of the model. Um, sure. I Okay. Yeah. No, I was just curious. That That's interesting. And so how do you, because I'm, I'm somewhat religiously inclined, but <laughs> I'm, I'm in a very kind of questioning uh, mode at, at this point in my life. And so right. I'm curious, I mean, what's your kind of, um, response to kind of typical objections to uh, religious beliefs? Oh, well, the objections have to do with what the religions got right and what they got wrong. Okay. And I've spent my whole life sorting that particular question out and finally figured it out. It took three decades. Uh, but what the religions got wrong is that <clears throat> their cosmologies were based on outdated scientific knowledge. It's just because there's no conflict between science and religion. The conflict is between the science of 2000 AD and the science of 2000 BC. Uh, that's a Joseph Campbell quote, one of his best, I think. Hmm. Uh, so what doesn't work is that they didn't know about the way the, they didn't know that the planets are going around the sun, not around the earth. Uh, so you have to be able to sift out those cosmological things. Then there's the ethical things that have to do with things like the caste system in India or the preoccupation with sin uh, and fallenness in Christianity. You sort of have to filter those things out too as local transformational developments uh, a lot of that has to do with priesthoods trying to gain power and empower themselves uh, by taking ideas and making them dogmatic. But what they did get right, uh, as far as I can tell, that all of them have gotten right, that there is a spiritual world. There is such a being as a God type being. Who knows what it is? It's not a male or a female. Those are all biological things. Uh, it's just a powerful energy that's, that is the radiant source of love and intelligence that powers our being as well. 
and we can dialogue with it. And I think there are also higher spiritual beings as well. And uh, I think the religions did get this right. I think Christianity missed the boat on reincarnation. Uh, they got that wrong. Uh, the Hindus got that right. Um, but I think the preoccupation with the caste system, that's a social control thing that has nothing to do with the religious core about how the reincarnational process works. So it's a vast process of sifting out the wheat from the chaff. Um, I feel like I'm getting there, but sometimes I have doubts. Uh, and I'm not sure, but um, that's what that that's the progress report as of today. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's useful for helping me understand how you see it. So your view is sort of like there is a deep truth in kind of the history of religions, but each his, each particular contingent uh, religion is sort of biased and confused by different types of political pressures and also just the scientific ignorance at the time that they were developed and through the times that they evolved. And so you, you're met, you have a kind of method where you're interested in basically kind of uh, working backwards or kind of reverse engineering, parsing out the, the social and political and pre-scientific biases and confusions and finding, you know, you think you can kind of find the, ultimate bedrock truth that all of these different religions are testifying to. Yeah, at least that's the ideal, I think. Uh, I, I don't claim that I found the ultimate bedrock truth because yeah, my right. knowledge is still so about the other side is still so murky. But what works for me is the fact, uh, and I think in a way it was science ironically that brought this back because the techniques, when my interest in studying this came about uh, was from listening to near-death experiences on YouTube. Uh, so I would just get drunk one night and go on YouTube for fun and uh, go to these, they, they would have these near-death experience or conferences where each person would get up on stage and tell the near-death experience. So there's hundreds of videos on there. And I just went through all of them. And at that point, uh, there was some, and the reason there are so many of them is because the, the techniques for reviving people have gotten better and better and better. Uh, and so we've, we're getting more and more accounts from these people coming back saying what they're encounters were on the other side and they're coming back and reporting it to us. But pretty soon as I started to listen to the country that they're talking about, I started to realize that this is a real country. All these people are coming and they're saying they saw the, basically the same outlines. So I've never been to Great Britain, uh, but I know that it exists because the accounts that people tell me about it all tally. They all match. So obviously these people have all been there. I don't need to go there to validate its existence. So it's sort of like that. It was a matter of tallying the accounts listening to what they say, looking for the consistencies, uh, looking for contradictions. If they emerge, then why do they emerge? Is it a glitch uh, or what is it? And sort of ironing that out. And after a while, I began to realize this, this must be real. And this was, I don't know, about 10 years ago when, when it started to dawn on me that the soul must be a real thing and it must actually go to another world after the body melts away. So uh, that's what started the, my interest in all of this. That's fascinating. So you're you're basing a lot of your views on the data that you've got from people reporting their near death experiences and trying to sift through what is common to all of them and therefore, you know, most reliable. Right. Then uh, the additional experiential dimension is then using mediums to contact the dead. Wow. And then listening to what they say. Uh, like when my mother died, this, this experiment began uh, uh, last year when my mother died. And uh, I had heard that you could use a medium to talk to dead relatives. Uh, but up to that point, I'd never been a necessity. So I got curious and I found a, a good medium. 
and she facilitated a communication with uh, both my mother and my grandmother, both of whom died within four days of each other. And they were both there, and it was very clear that it was them because they knew things that the medium could not know about my personal life. My brother was there too. He was very skeptical, but he wasn't skeptical after the conversation. Really? Um, and that generally is what it takes to, to click for people is uh, getting a medium to interview your dead relatives because that's proof for you. You know what they know. The relatives know what you know, but the medium doesn't. So that's a good experiential way of validating for yourself that you really are talking to Uncle David or you know whoever it is. Um, and they're there because they're giving you these details. So it was from that point that I got the idea, maybe we could interview dead philosophers as well. Uh, they must be there. Uh, can mediums contact uh, dead philosophers? And so I got curious. Can you? And I, yes. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, as far as, as far as I can tell. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that's I got great. a hold of a, of a medium, uh, Shruti Campbell, uh, living. She lives in London. She's a computer programmer with a nine to five job um, who just gradually learned that she could hear the dead and talk to them. And so at the time I contacted her, this was just earlier, uh, late last year, um, I said, is it possible that we could interview like Oswald Spangler, my all-time favorite philosopher? Do you think we could do that? She's like, I don't know, probably. Uh, she didn't know anything about philosophy. Um, so she's all left brain linear computer programming intelligence, not not the so much the in right brain humanities tradition. And I liked that kind of naivete about her because I thought that that's good. Then uh, the concepts that are coming through, I can evaluate for myself because I'm not going to interview any anyone whose ideas that I haven't studied very, very well. And so we interviewed Oswald Spengler and it did indeed seem to be him. Um, the answers I was getting were pretty okay. consistent with him. And so maybe it's a game. Maybe it's a game of what if. <clears throat> uh, but it's a fun <clears throat> it's a fun game. That's really fun. fun. That's hilarious. That's so interesting. And so did you like write down everything Oswald Spengler said or what? No, not yet. We might turn it into a book at some point. Um, We might. Uh, Once we get enough of these. uh, Yeah, yeah, they're just video recordings right now. And so we're still in the experimental stage. Uh, We have a bunch more interviews with different beings lined up. And I'll see how all that tallies and fits together. And I'm still trying to figure out the cosmology of the other side. I want to make sure I understand it. And every time I interview one of them, I get a slightly better focus on it than I had previously. And I want to get it as clear as I can possibly get it so that I can pass it on to people who are open and receptive to it, who maybe have spiritual impulses, but they don't like uh, all the problems of traditional you know, identification of yourself as, you know, if I'm a Christian, let's say, then I, do I have to believe in the cosmology of the Bible? Because we know it's wrong. We know the cosmology is wrong. So they get stuck in these conflicts like, uh, you know, the creationists versus the Darwinists. And that's just a silly controversy. There's no reason for a Christian not to be able to believe in evolution and still have a belief in God. There just isn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people get snagged and tangled up with these problems. Um, So I like to try to figure these things out and iron them in, play around with them and just be open to the ideas. Who knows? Definitely. Uh, that's a great maybe idea. I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe all this is just a game, uh, but it's a fun one and I, it's entertaining me and a lot of people like it. So. Fun is a very good justification for many things. And I think, um, I mean, I think what you're saying is a very, I'm definitely intrigued. You know, I'm very fascinated and uh, I'm, I, I like all far out ideas. You know, I think people should, people should experiment with whatever. Yeah. is a combination of fun and, and exciting and intriguing to them. And who knows what you'll learn, you know, uh, you know, who, who, you know, yeah. So I think I like, I like 
I like people who test out far out ideas. I, I appreciate that. You, you know who Arthur Arthur Schopenhauer is? Sure. Yeah, um, and you get the gist of his disposition. He was a very uh, kind of like Beethoven. He was very, always moody in a bad mood, and he was a misanthrope and a misogynist, and he hated right. people. And, right. So when when we got him on, I wanted to interview him, and the first thing the medium said was he doesn't really want to do the interview, and I was like. That's Schopenhauer. That's his personality. And she was like, he doesn't want to be here, but he's agreed to do it. So, uh, and so we had a good laugh over that. That's Schopenhauer. That's his personality. So it's been like that all along, getting little glints of these people's personalities that I know what they're like uh, coming through as validation, in addition to all kinds of different details. Are mediums, like any profession, there? there's extreme variation in quality and skill? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the medium who interviewed my dead mother I asked her first if she could bring in dead philosophers and she's like, no, there's no, I have no idea how to do that. I have to have a personal, there has to be a personal connection between the person that I'm interviewing and the living person. Uh, so she can do it. And a lot of mediums apparently can't do it. And some who do do it are um, better and more skilled at it than others. I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not an exact science. It's like with any other profession, it, it's hit and miss. You know? Sure. Yeah. So someone asked before, do, what makes you so confident in the idea of reincarnation in particular? Well, because that's what everybody says in the near-death experiences. Oh, okay. experiences. When they go to the other side, they always come back and say they remembered their past lives. Uh, and it comes back to you, apparently, once you get over onto the other side. Uh, then it comes back. Um, so I began to realize reincarnation must then be true. It's a game that we're playing, the incarnation game. Uh, the soul on the other side... Uh, likes to try out different kinds of lives on the physical plane, no matter how painful they are, no matter what kind of suffering is involved. The suffering to the other side is just like an interesting, uh, it's like putting on a, you know, a scuba diving suit and jumping down into the water, see what you'll find. Um, the, it may hurt, uh, but there's nothing that you can't learn from suffering and they bring it back and they want to try something else. Um, that's, it's apparent to me that seems to be what we're doing here is a kind of, incarnation game interesting so the people who report kind of crossing over to the other side uh they're they're kind of conscious of the crossing over and they remember their previous self or no uh usually not always i remember one or two accounts where a person had gotten to the other side immediately like from uh being in a one of those jeeps in uh the middle east uh that exploded you know from an iud and suddenly they're on the other side and I remember the medium, I forget the woman's name. I wish I could remember it. I remember the medium interviewing her and she had not yet recalled her past lives. And she seemed to be a little bit disoriented still, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Uh, but usually it seems to be the process that um, the first thing apparently that happens is once you go through, very often it's the, the cliche of the tunnel of light. Not always, but very often the first thing that happens is your life review. Um, your etheric body opens up, which contains all of your memories. And it opens up before you panoramically so that you can see all the things that you lived through and kind of look at what you could have done better. You could have been nicer to this person, more loving here, done acts of generosity there. Um, and so you have, everyone has a sort of life review first of the immediate life that you just got out of. Then uh, as you move past the etheric body into the astral body, the astral body contains all your memories from your previous lives. They're, they're karmically inscribed in there. And then you can access those and begin to see where you're at in this whole process. And then from that point, decide what you want to do next. Uh, do you want to keep learning 
uh, interacting with higher beings on the other side, having experiences there, or do you want to reincarnate again on the physical plane uh, and try that again? And um, it just all depends on where you where you're at and what you feel you need to experience, what type of life that you want for yourself. Wow, that's cool that you got a choice. I never heard that before. You do have a choice, but not only that, but there's something called uh, contracts where um, certain events uh, are fated to happen in your life. So it's it's this balance between free will and what you might call karma. Uh, these fated events are often referred to as contracts that you make before incarnating with higher beings. Uh, let's say that this terrible thing might happen to you at this point. Uh, you're going to lose a kid who dies in a car accident at this point, uh, let's say. And that's a karmic pre-agreement that's going to happen. Your free will has to do with, first of all, in agreeing to it. And second of all, uh, in responding to it on the physical plane with your own free will, are you going to commit suicide because of it? Are you going to let the grief kill you? Or are you going to build from it and move on? So these pre-agreements are certain fated things uh, that these higher beings show to you. And very often it can be uh, a life that's so difficult that you decide you don't want it to be that hard. So they can tamp it down for you. Uh, the other thing about that is if they do so, you're going to learn less, they say. So the harder lives are the ones where you're going to learn more from spiritually and grow. So it, it depends on where. So there are apparently these agreements that you have before you incarnate. So you're and once you've incarnated, certain people have agreed to meet you at certain points from, before you all incarnated. People tend to incarnate in groups. Uh, family members tend to switch around, play roles. Uh, a father and a daughter uh, might die and reincarnate and reincarnate as best buddies in another lifetime. Uh, we like to switch roles, switch sexes, uh, switch family relationships. Um, uh, and apparently this is what's going on. This is the picture that I'm slowly forming in my mind about how all this is working. Well, the idea of contracts is very interesting because, you know, there's this renewed interest in cryptography and specifically cryptography as a kind of model for understanding underlying reality in some sense. Uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with the simulation hypothesis? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it's fairly straightforward. It, it has some some currency, I think, in contemporary academic philosophy. Um, but it, it just basically refers to the to the idea that uh, perhaps we're living in a simulation. So um, Nick Bostrom, in, in particular, is kind of associated with giving this argument quite a lot of of credibility. He has some papers on it, but um, so so it's, you know there are some people very smart, kind of respected philosophers working today who take the idea of the simulation argument very seriously, Nick Bostrom being one of them. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because it seems to me like if kind of hard-nosed rationalist philosophy is confronting the likelihood or at least the possibility that we are living in a simulation, well, then that sounds to me quite a lot like uh, the traditional creator God that, you know, is, t uh, testified to in, in many religions. And so the reason that's kind of interesting following up on what you were saying about contracts and this kind of theme or motif of contracts in near death experience reports is that, you know, if we are a simulation and, and someone created us as, as a simulation or some entity or agent created a, you know, some higher form of intelligence would be maybe a more um, scientific way to put it in a, in a more kind of uh, computational register. If a higher intelligence is is simulating us, 
and we are a simulation of a higher intelligence, then it would make sense that the way our lives unfold, they unfold almost like cryptographic smart contracts. Like it's a series of highly complex, almost infinite, if then conditional statements in increasingly complicated ways. Um, and, and that, that, and that it, there's something in the nature of reality itself that is essentially um, computationally or cryptographically uh, hard, hardwired as, as a series of contracts or something like that. That's really interesting. It does remind me a bit of the Hindu conception of Maya, the world as an illusion um, that is a very convincing illusion. It's like a dream that you're experiencing and then you wake up from it uh, and the real reality is on the other side. Uh, and this world becomes more like a dream. I, I guess it just depends on where you want to put the accent. Uh, for me, it seems as though we, this is a real experience that we're really actually having. But nonetheless, uh, we are in dialogue with the other side. Uh, we're, our souls are from the other side, uh, trapped in physical bodies that we're, we have to work with as we solve these life tasks and problems using our own free will. As, as the faded things that we've already pre-agreed to come to us, and then you use your free will to respond to it. Uh, whichever way you want. Um, there's a lot of free will involved, I think, but, but there's also fate. Uh, the two are in balance. And do you, says, this is the image that I'm getting so far. And I want to learn more about this. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm hungry for, like, there are a lot of things I don't know that I want to find out about. Like, how do you incarnate? How do, how do you, at what point does the soul incarnate in the body? And how, how does it happen? And what's, what's the mechanics of it? That area is all vague to me. Right. Do you th- have you thought much about artificial intelligence at all? No, it's not my field. It's not my uh, area of expertise. Sure. Other than in science fiction, of course, I love science fiction. Okay, I was only curious because I also think about artificial intelligence as a kind of another as another pathway towards a possible kind of convergence between science and religion. Because you know, it's increasingly the consensus, I would say, among uh, kind of the most astute observers of artificial intelligence developments right now that some sort of um, human level or above human level machine intelligence will appear basically sometime within, you know, the next 100 years or something like that. People have done research like expert surveys and um, an, o- an overwhelming majority of of experts say that we'll have um, yeah, machine, human level or greater machine intelligence, uh, general intelligence. So not just like the, the computer that beat the best go player, but, um, some sort of general intelligence that is as good as human beings in machine form sometime in the next hundred years. or. I'm always, I'm always skeptical about that. Um, it's possible because science just keeps surprising us, you know, with technology, it's surprise after surprise after surprise. So who, who knows what's going to happen? But I'm a little bit skeptical about that because I wonder about just how much about the way the human mind works we really do know. And it seems a little bit like it's boiling it down to just the neocortex and the way the neocortex works with higher level decision making. But there's so much about the unconscious that we don't know, so much about the way that uh, the unconscious relates to the conscious mind that is deep and mysterious to us. And I have a hard time believing that that can ever be modeled artificially in such a way, uh, because it seems it seems like they're leaving areas of the mind out of this picture, these deeper, darker recesses within us. 
that are dark and the impulses, we're not sure about what's going on down there. It's very mysterious. And the model presupposes that we know all of that, that we can model. In order to model it, you have to know exactly how the unconscious works. And the unconscious is like a, it's like a force of mystery that we're stuck with our entire lives that is always like a step ahead of us, always seems to be a bit smarter than mm-hmm. us. And it's something that um, is mysterious. And I, I don't know. I'm skeptical. But well, as, I say, as I say, I've been surprised over and over again with, with science. So who knows? Right. I may be wrong about that. Right. Well, I agree with most of everything you just said. I, I agree there's so much that we still don't know about the nature of our own cognition and what it means to be intelligent. I guess I would only add that for the purposes of, of creating machine intelligence, we don't really need to know how all of the inner workings work. We just need to be able to engineer systems that function uh, more or less with this, with the sophistication that, that we have. So, you know, you well, it'd be interesting to, to experience that. Um, however, I would never trust a machine, no matter how smart with any decision-making for me, um, I just would not because machines they have, you know, they don't have ethics. They don't have a sense of right and wrong or causing harm to somebody. What, what does it mean to make the wrong decision and you hurt someone or, uh, you know, I, I just don't trust that they have that they could ever have that degree of sensitivity and compassion and love these other areas of us, which actually I think are more important than intellect. Um, that I just, I don't know. I'm just, as I say, I'm skeptical. Sure. Well, the reason no, I agree. Those are good objections. And I agree mm-hmm. that I think it's far less worked out than a lot of uh, experts, uh, you know, want, want to believe. But well, one thing that I do think about, however, is that if we do see in the next hundred years, uh, human level or greater machine intelligence, especially if it becomes, you know, recursive and it's able to improve itself. I mean, if we do see that, then, there are many scenarios in which it, it would be not just possible, but perhaps even likely that there would be some sort of super intelligence takeoff scenario. And mm-hmm. so this is what Nick Bostrom has kind of uh, analyzed from, from every possible angle he could, he could figure out, but, but this sort of super intelligence takeoff possibility, whatever, whatever pathway that might take, whatever, however that might end up looking. Um, it, it looks like, intelligence could in some way kind of escalate itself into a, a much higher level than than we could even fathom or we could even keep up with or understand or process. And I think about that also in a religious way, because, you know, a, a, a common motif of many religions is, you know, the 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 end days, right? The 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 end of time, uh, where, you know, the end meets the beginning. And this motif of, of the end meeting the beginning, you know, that's, you can, you can translate that into a kind of scientific rationalist uh, sense using kind of these component parts. I've introduced the simulation argument and then the possibility of a super intelligence takeoff scenario. In other words, we, we are a simulation of a higher intelligence and our own simulation itself generating um, a, a, a self-escalating, recursively improving form of intelligence that is going to basically uh, go on a vector back straight up to the higher intelligence that uh, s- perhaps simu- is simulating us from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that is all what I just said 
is surprisingly kind of accepted by the most hard-nosed kind of rationalist empirical observers of of intelligence questions right now. And I, I think that's very that's very profound for people who are interested in uh, religious worldviews, I think. I just don't trust technology. For some reason, I just, I, I never can, even though, as I say, science brought back, I think, this my ability to find out about the afterlife. So I'm very grateful to it for that. And I, I like a lot of things about science. I like a lot of the gadgets, but I just don't trust them. I just have an inherent, I guess it's, it's uh, coming out of the humanities uh, and more of a right brain type of mind uh, being more distrustful of the left brain type of approach. Um, Even though I do find it fascinating, but um, I just don't trust uh, putting too much faith in technology to, to, to do these things, even though um, I'm sure we're in for all kinds of surprises. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Um, So we have been talking for quite a while now. I, I hope I'm not overtaxing you. No, no, no. Uh, podcasts usually go an hour and a half to two hours. My max is definitely two hours, but no. Okay, good, uh, good. We're like ninety minutes in here, so if you have more, more stuff. Perfect. Yeah. Um. I'm. I still have a lot of energy, so let's let's roll with okay. it. Then. All right. One, one question. I have another cigarette. What's that? I have another cigarette. Then. Go. For I it. like the the nicotine and the caffeine and the synapses. You know. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I like it, man. It's a it's a good. You're like a you're you're an old school classic writer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. I like it. Um, someone was asking before, actually before it was at the very beginning, before you even came in, someone was saying that, and I don't know anything about this, but uh, you, someone was saying that you've lately been making appearances on, I guess, somewhat controversial YouTube channels. I don't know if you oh, uh, like all alt-right ones. I think someone kind of said that something to that yeah. effect. I didn't want to pin that to you or anything like that. I wanted to hear what, in your own words, like what. That's the only thing controversial that I, I could possibly think of because I usually shy away from controversy. Um, right. So how do you the see alt right does I does tend to like me uh, because they like my knowledge of history and culture and my conservatism regarding traditional values and ideas. Uh, that hey, maybe we did get spirituality right. Maybe we shouldn't just let science bully us into believing that the world is just a bunch of atoms kicking around. Um, they kind of like that because mm-hmm. they have a conservative side to them where uh, they like those traditional ideas, but where, you know, we, of course, part company over the racism, I'll have nothing to do with it. Um, so they like that aspect of me, but I, I don't identify as alt-right. I don't identify as left or right. Sure. I stay out of, I'm middle of the road and I stay, I stay out of that stuff because I, I find there's too many problems with both left and right. Uh, and they've become unappealing in nasty ways. Both of them have become very nasty uh, right now. So I try to stay away from them, but that's fine. You know, uh, the alt-right, uh, you know, they, they just like some of my stuff, but we're never going to match up on racist ideas and ethnic, right, ideas, right. ethnic, ethnic cleansing and <laughs> white genocide and silly, silly things like that. Right. right. I'm, 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 I'm with you on that, but, but I guess you're not, allergic to talking with people who have some dicey view. No, no, because you can always, you can always learn from, from someone I uh, no, no matter what, as somebody always has something interesting to say that you're going to learn from if they have a higher than average intelligence, then I'm open to discussion on anything. I want to learn too. And it's a, it's a mutual process of learning back and forth. Um, nobody gets everything right, but nobody also gets everything wrong. Um, so I try to leave that open-mindedness uh, yeah. 
as I a think, standard. I think I think that's an absolutely sound position, to be honest. And I have a lot of respect for that position. I think I'm actually thinking a lot about this question a lot right now. And, you know, listening to you say what you just said, I think in some sense, that's just the obvious correct answer, I think. But I guess maybe I'm I still have enough of a foot in various kind of institutional uh, social games that I'm and also I was I was like a kind of hardcore leftist activist for like the past six or seven years up until like a year ago, basically. So um, I'm, I think I'm a little, I basically agree with what you just said. I think that's the, that that's the most reasonable. And also that's even the most like progressive uh, attitude towards, towards this question. Um, I think I'm a little bit slower to, you know, really uh, welcome conversations with, some of the more dicier people out there because I'm, I, I think I remain a little skittish. I remain a little. Yeah. Uh, I understand. I remain a little. But I have this part of me and, and you could see this if you go through my writings where I've written about spree killers, for instance, mm. and that takes a certain type of, because if someone is upset, I would rather know why they're upset because they're upset for a reason. So mm. that becomes a sort of interesting thing to try and figure out for me. What has caused them to get this upset, to produce this level of rage. And so I've studied, you know, I, studied, I have a chapter on the Columbine kids in uh, the age of catastrophe. I've written about Charles Whitman and the Unabomber uh, because typhoid, you know, I, I don't agree with what they do, but I want to know why what they do has happened as a cultural manifestation because it tells you something about the type of age that we're in. I don't ever, ever remember an age in history when spree killers were around. That's a new thing. That's Charles Whitman is the first. And he's like, what, 1962 or somewhere thereabouts. Uh, and he was a bit of a singularity ahead of his time. And then it didn't get caught up until, you know, the, with Columbine and the terrible wave of it that we've got going now, which is awful. Uh, there, But there's a reason for it. There, there's a reason why these things happen in, in cultures. Um, I don't ever remember recounts of, uh, Romans talking about some guy went crazy with a sword and ran around the forum stabbing everyone. I don't remember ever hearing any accounts uh, like that. So it apparently did not happen then. So it becomes interesting to wonder why. Or why did serial killers first appear at the end of the 19th century? Why didn't we have them before the Jack the Ripper and the one guy at the Chicago World's Fair, whose name I've forgotten, who might have been technically the first uh, 1890-ish something. Uh, why do those two guys first show up when they do? And we've had serial killers ever since. Um, there are reasons. And so it becomes more interesting to me to not be sympathetic necessarily, but to just uh, take a kind of a scientific point of view uh, and look at what's causing the upset, what's causing the motivations. Because all human behavior is motivated. There's always a reason for why somebody believes what they do or why somebody thinks what they think. And that becomes interesting to me to, to fathom motivations. Yeah, I think that's a, a very legitimate an important kind of research interest. I also think, I almost, I think that actually giving a little bit of airtime to the most fringe and even the most dangerous or violent uh, thinkers or figures is actually probably going to kind of domesticate them <laughs> relatively. You know, there's this, the, the popular mental model that most people have is that if you give airtime to people who have bad views or are dangerous, then you're going to promote them and you're going to encourage them and their toxic ideas are going to spread and they're going to be emboldened and they're going to be more violent uh, because they're propelled by the airtime that you're giving them. That, that's like the overwhelmingly dominant model in kind of in mainstream progressive culture. And 
it's it, I've just never been convinced of that. And I almost think it's the opposite. The opposite is the case, which is that the people who are really violent and have the really most toxic ideologies and do terrible things like go on a spree shootings are in large part, extremely frustrated from a lack of recognition from a lack of, yes. from, not, I, I so from not having yeah. a seat at any currently existing table. They're not allowed to sort of talk. Yeah. They're not allowed to talk on someone's YouTube and just simply say what they think. So they have, they yes. bottle it up and they plan these it's, psychotic right. kind of revenge fantasies. That's right. They don't feel listened to. And that's one of the common complaints I found over and over again in studying them is that they, they don't feel listened to, uh, which is the reason for for them eventually exploding in these acts of violence. And I remember, I can't remember what the shooting was, but there was one kid at a school somewhere a ways back, maybe five or six years back. Uh, his whole attack was stopped by the fact that the, one of the administrative women, like in the principal's office or something like that, uh, asked him why he was so upset. <laughs> you know, and she listened to him and he stopped and he said, here's why. And it's, it ended this, the thing. That right. was it. Right. And, um, that was a clue to me when I heard that is that these, these people don't feel listened to. Um, so we have to listen to them and try to find out why there's this upset. Where, where's the upset coming from? Um, so in your larger kind of cosmological and religious yeah. and media studies uh, perspective that you've cultivated over all the, these years, do you, do you have a particular kind of read or take on, on this particular moment of kind of alt-right consciousness? Like for instance, you know, the, where do, where do you think these ideas of white genocide and all of that, where do you think that comes from or how do you read that? It's a difficult matter to sort out. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I, at least in Europe, part of it has to do with uh, the refugees coming over from Syria and Angela Merkel letting in so many of them. Uh, and then we got the rapes in Cologne. Uh, what was it? Uh, New Year's Eve, 2015, 16. Uh, and a lot of that comes out of that, that uh, alt-right resentment against bringing these refugees in is based on a cultural identification issue. And I know this is going to take a minute or two to explain this, but Take your time. Um, part of the problem has to do with the relationship between Islam and the West. Historically, uh, Islam exploded uh, out of the Middle East and then migrated across North Africa, made its way up into Spain and swallowed up Spain, engulfed it, and was stopped from swallowing up France only by Charles Martel in 732, I think it was, at the Battle of Tours. He was successful and drew a cultural boundary act between the West, let's say Christianity, Western Christianity, and Islam, and Islam had to remain content with just having Spain for several centuries until gradually they lost footing, until you get, by the time Ferdinand and Isabella, they're finally gone after Granada. Uh, so there's that aspect, and then on the eastern flank, Islam, via the Ottoman Empire, has gradually marched west, uh, and they took Constantinople in 1453, they swallowed that up, that was it for Byzantine civilization, it was gone from that point on, it's been Muslim ever since. Uh, so the Greek world got swallowed up and they kept marching. By the time you get to 1680 or so, they're at the gates of Vienna and they want to keep pushing in and pushing in and swallowing up and swallowing up. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire emerged out of Europe's eastern flank to prevent that from happening, to prevent them from getting in and swallowing up the West. So this becomes an issue of cultural immune systems, whether one civilization is strong enough to resist engulfment by another. Islam is a very tough civilization, but then so is the West. 
Uh, they're, they're really tough. And they've met these cultural boundary demarcators uh, on those two flanks uh, for a very, very long time. And I think after the dismantling of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, after uh, World War I, they lost their empire. And the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, also disintegrated, destabilized the Middle East. And so we've had problems ever since with the Middle East going back and forth with the politics being entangled. But it still becomes an issue of cultural identification. What is the West? Um, I think the West doesn't want to be Islamified. They don't want to be Muslim. And these people who react against this uh, on these Eastern flanks, this, this issue of cultural membranes and boundaries uh, got, you know, it's like blowing on coals to make them hot again with the refugee crisis. Then it becomes an issue of um, what do you want to do? Where do we draw the boundary? Uh, so I'm a little bit sympathetic. I, I see it as part of this historical process. I'm a little bit sympathetic to them about that um, mm -hmm. because they're, it, you know, it's an issue. To, if you just steer away from the ethics of it and just look at it as a purely a matter of one culture swallowing up another. Um, just as we Westerners swallowed up the Mesoamerican civilization, we gobbled it whole. The Aztecs and the Incas—they're gone. And when they, the West came in, we just swallowed it right up. Uh, their immune system, whatever it was, was not strong enough to resist engulfment by the West. Um, so it just—it's a—it's a matter of survive cultural survival. Right. Yeah. I, I, so, I, I can see that. From the, I can see what they're talking about. And after the rapes in Cologne. Uh, and the terrorist attacks ever since. I, I, I can get it. The, what happened in France recently with the, uh, the shootings at all the cafes and the dance club. Right. Uh, I get it. I, I get why they're so upset. I, I can understand it. Right. Even though I don't sympathize with white supremacism or white nationalism or anything like that, but I, right. I, get, I get what they're upset about. Right. Well, and I think that's the key to, to really understand what, people are talking about in their dissatisfactions and the more the more horrified you are by people's viewpoints the more you want to know exactly what it is they they are re really truly referring to and, and what they're actually really kind of worried about and upset about so i think that's that's about as fair and charitable an interpretation as as you can give and i agree that when you put it in the larger context of centuries and centuries and you do kind of realize just that it's a fundamental fact of political history uh, and the movement of populations is such that, yes. you know, there, there, there is always this kind of long-term competition between different populations. You know, that, that's you also have to consider the fact too. Another historical analogy is with the sea peoples, you know, about these guys, the sea peoples. I can't um, say I do. Okay. Uh, this is 1200 BC. It's about the time of the Trojan war. And also about the time of the Exodus, a uh, very unstable world going on here, 1200 BC. And then the Sea Peoples show up. And nobody knows exactly where they came from. I suspect they came out of the Black Sea. Uh, they came out of the southern shores of the Black Sea, went around. And at that time, uh, every civilization they encountered, they dismantled and destroyed. The Hittites, for example, were gobbled up by them almost overnight. The Hittites were tough, too. They had been there from about 1700 BC down to the demarcator, 1200 BC. Uh, so these sea peoples, and there were refugees and migrants who most likely were suffering from famine and food shortages. Uh, that's my guess that impelled them uh, to go and get the, the goods from the people who have got the goods. Let's, they've got it. They're keeping it from us and we need to survive too. So that justifies in their minds, these invasions, they wiped out the Hittites. They wiped out all the civilizations 
of the Middle East as well. And then they came down to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were the only civilization that withstood them. Uh, they wiped out the Mycenaeans as well. There's a, this is the chisora between the Mycenaean Greeks and the later Dorian Greeks. Uh, many of these sea peoples came in with the later Dorian Greeks. But the uh, Egyptians resisted them, although only just barely, under Ramses III. He was the one who had to deal with them. And they had to figure out what to do with them. And one thing they figured out was to settle them and give them lands uh, in the Middle East and get them situated there. So the Peleset, the tribe of the Peleset, uh, became the uh, Palestinians. The word Palestine, uh, Palestinian comes from the, the tribe of the Sea Peoples known as the Peleset. So they've left their mark there, uh, the Luvians and so forth. All these people have come in, and the Egyptians responded. They kept their civilization intact, but only just barely in, and it never really produced anything else interesting after this time period because it so exhausted their resources dealing with the crisis of the Sea Peoples. Uh, so once again there, you have issues about uh, another example of uh, the fact that culture, I mean, the, the fear of your culture of getting swallowed alive is a real fear. You, you can't dismiss it because it's happened historically over and over again. Um, so it's a real fear. It's, it's not something that we can just dismiss and say, oh, come on, don't worry about it. It's not that way. We've right. seen these historical examples of peoples coming in, destroying and dismantling other peoples, and then setting up new cultural sign regimes uh, that are brand new civilizations, and the old ones are gone. They've been swallowed alive. So once again, it comes back to this. The Egyptian cultural immune system was incredibly ancient and incredibly strong, so they were able to survive it, but uh, the Hittites were a more recent development, and they didn't. So and so did, that to, to did, the sea, did the sea people prosper and, and become uh, associated with a population yes. that we now recognize? Uh, well, yes. I, um, I don't know about now, uh, but they do. They uh, are part of all this disruption and dissettlement that apparently occurs at the same time as the Trojan War, um, which seems to have just preceded this and may even have been the event that stimulated uh, the sea peoples coming in because the Trojan War takes place right on the Bosphorus there. Uh, and may have destabilized that entire, the Greek victory over the Trojans might have been the impetus to destabilize that region. Uh, and with the exodus going on from uh, under Ramses II at about the same time, 1200 BC, we get lots of movements of migratory populations going back and forth and the Sea Peoples coming in, intermixing with the Semites who are migrating from Egypt. And so this becomes the sort of pre-cultural dark age, as it were, that, uh, Almost every civilization comes out of a, di a dark age, a, a Volkerwanderung, as it's called, that necessarily precedes it, just as ours did in the West with the Viking invasions and so forth, and all that displacement and Volkerwanderung. And then you get the new civilization of the Hebrews coming out of this. A Jewish Hebraic civilization comes into being, and that becomes the Judeo-Christian Islamic cultural cycle that becomes the, uh, the sequel to the Greco-Roman cycle. The Greeks also get going out of all this disaster and Egypt is old and done, and it's a revered, fossilized museum. But this is the second generation of civilization, 1200 BC, with the Greeks, the Jews, the Persians, the Hindus, the Chinese, all come in about 1200 BC out of all of this Dark Age chaos that has come about from the flotsam and jetsam uh, cultural detritus of the first generation of civilization, which was the Sumerians and the Egyptians, 3500 BC, 3000 BC, and then by the time you get to 1200 BC, those civilizations are dead, done, and gone. They're just dying ancient relics. And all of this stuff has happened, all of this cultural shifting around uh, and displacement and descent 
and dissatisfaction with these uh, older dying behemoths led to this cultural dismantification, uh, dismantling rather, uh, that brought about the second generation of civilization that came forth as the new ordered logos world that came out of all this chaos. Interesting. So you just used the word logos, which is interesting because it actually syncs up exactly with the question I was kind of thinking about in the, in the last few sentences of, of your last comment, which is, you know, do you have any sympathy for the idea that, that I think you hear, you hear echoes of this in someone like Jordan Peterson. I don't think he's like very explicit about this exactly. Other people are more explicit about it, but the idea that there's something kind of unique about Christianity that is just a little bit better than the other. No. Are you sympathetic no. to that or no? No. No, no. It doesn't matter what religion you're in. They're all the same, basically. I don't believe in this uh, uh, ancient, medieval, modern schema that Oswald Spengler, when he wrote The Decline of the West, was the first to dismantle. And he called that the Ptolemaic model hmm. of, of history in which everything revolves around the West. Uh, there's these ancients, then came the Middle Ages, and it's a progress model. And here's the West, who's come along after that. It's Ptolemaic. Everything revolves around the West, whereas for Spangler, he was he proposed a Copernican model of history in which each civilization is its own world center with its own history, its own mathematics, its own kind of art, its own sign regime, its own understanding of its place in the world. Right. None of them is privileged over any of the others. Uh, and no, I don't see anything that privileges okay. Christianity over any of these others. Okay, right. That's interesting. So when someone like Jordan Peterson kind of talks about how you know, there's a unique kind of uh, discovery or innovation in kind of the Christian model, which makes it kind of uniquely uh, generative of, you know, modern classical liberal society and all of its productive and cooperative wonders. You think that that is basically just, well, as kind of, you know, white Western uh, Christian inflected people in that culture, we are going to naturally feel like it's superior. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. And maybe Peterson thinks that because he hasn't studied these other world religions in, in any kind of depth or detail. And it takes a lot of time and you got to log in a lot of hours of reading uh, and saying no to social events and just sitting in your study, reading, reading, reading until you get an understanding of these other religions. And they, they're all unique. They've all discovered something totally unique that the other one has not. Uh, I don't see that the West is any different in that. Yeah. Okay. That's plus that's, as far as this contribution to humanism out of Christianity goes, I don't know about that because Christianity emerged as a slave religion uh, as Nietzsche analyzes based on mm -hmm. Pearson knows this. He's read Nietzsche based on resentment, uh, resentment against those in power above. So the whole religion is based on resentment of power. Um, so that needs to be factored in that this was a slave revolt, basically uh, Spartacus, the, the slave revolt back then, didn't have Christianity to give them, give those slaves uh, in their revolt uh, a worldview, but they were disaffected nonetheless, and they got tired of being mistreated. So uh, the Romans had to deal with those slave revolts, and they, they successfully quelled them. But then, uh, with the, the Christian event, with uh, Christ teaching his religion of love, uh, but it's also based on resentment as it spread amongst the slaves because it was the slaves who picked it up first. Um, and it became their whole worldview. So the West has come out of a religion based on uh, resentment. Hmm. Right, sure. But surely there is something going on with the relationship between Christianity and, you know, the unique uh, kind of explosion of economic productivity 
uh, that was, you know, the industrial revolution, right? Perhaps. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of religious ideas that I see that have uh, come out of Christianity that are in science now, and maybe even in capitalism as well, with the idea of um, the logos having control over the material world and this ontological disjunction between the logos and the physical plane and having mastery over the physical plane with the logos being superior to it uh, may have contributed, I think, to this Western understanding of the world as, as basically plunder. Uh, it's basically something that you can go after and, and master uh, through the application of the logos. This ontological disjunction between spirit and matter that we've inherited from Christianity has given us a kind of unique role in terms of our relationship to the material plane uh, and getting sick of things like famine. You know, science came out of solving the famine problem. The British were the first to solve it in the 18th century using new kinds of crop rotations. And they fixed it and solved it. And suddenly everybody was like, ah, well, science then. We, nobody wants another famine. Uh, but I think that the ideas of the spirit above matter and matter down here have carried over from Christianity into science. And so there is a certain relationship there. I won't deny that. Right. And I think it's supportive of your view that you can't really classify religions as better or worse to note also that even if there's a unique relationship between Christianity and, you know, the explosion of economic productivity that, you know, we now benefit from in the West today, it also, there, there's reason to believe it could also be the downfall of the, of the world. <laughs> right. Well, um, yes, there's a lot of reason to believe that um, once you, uh, what the and Guattari called uh, decode the flows, civilization's nightmare, they said is, is uh, uncoded flows. So flows always have to be coded and checked by state apparatuses. Uh, but capitalism, when it came along, has been the means par excellence of decoding the flows, getting rid of all restrictions on flows uh, and transforming them into monetary equivalents. And so we've got a civilization now that has conquered the entire planet. But the problem is how much plunder can you pull out of it when it is now a global situation with global warming, the melting of the ice caps, rising sea levels. Uh, so it does look like uh, we're headed for an apocalypse that has come about perhaps as the result of the Christian worldview as the presupposition for all this. Um, right, right. So, Well, I think we're coming up on two hours now, so I think that's yeah. about as good a place to call it a night as any. Yes, absolutely. John, this was really, really fun, and uh, I, I'm very grateful for you hanging out with me. I've really enjoyed it, uh, Justin. I've had a blast, and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. I would love to do it again sometime. Let's let's definitely stay in touch. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch for sure. Okay, Justin, uh, take care. Thanks again. Take it easy, John. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.